Today we're going to be diving into the first six verses of Philippians chapter 3, so you guys can go ahead and turn there. As I've been studying this um, this passage the last few weeks, uh, the Lord has just been convicting me with a lot of beautiful truths in this short passage, but I'm really looking forward to sharing them all with you today. So let's just start by reading the passage. Once again, that's Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's pray. Dearly Father God, um, I just thank you so much for this family that I get to be a part of. I pray that you would just continue to bless this church and Bless all of us this morning as uh, we study your word. We thank you for your word. We're we're thankful that you blessed us with the full canon of scripture so that we could know absolute truth straight from you. And I pray that as we study, um, that you would just give me the words to say and that you would only let uh, truth come out of my mouth and that you would lead my heart and that you would be glorified by everything that is spoken. Thank you once again for who you are and that you're our heavenly father. Pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. So as we just read in the first verse, um, we see that Paul begins this chapter with another encouragement to rejoice. And as we've been studying the last few, the last two chapters of Philippians, we notice that Paul always randomly mentions this idea of rejoicing. He says here in verse one, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. And the idea of joy now is beginning to present itself as a major theme throughout the whole of the letter. But the weird thing about all the mentions of the re- of rejoicing and this idea of joy so far is that they always seem to be in the middle of Paul's trains of thought. He just seems to randomly throw them in there. But, but Paul does the same thing here in chapter 3. And although rejoicing, I don't think, is the major point of this whole passage that we're going to be studying this morning, I believe that it would do the passage a disservice to just skip over it and not to mention it. So I want to spend a little bit of time here talking about rejoicing. And I also love that Paul says... To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He's saying that I'm going to keep writing these things. I'm going to keep reminding you to rejoice. It's no trouble to me to write it once more, to write it once more for you to hear. And it's safe for you. See, Paul doesn't, and what's also interesting is Paul doesn't write lengthy paragraphs in in his letters, in, in this letter when he's talking about joy, but he seems to, like I said, do it randomly. And all this sometimes, although this sometimes can be confusing and maybe even distracting for us as we're reading the passage, I've been so glad as I've been reading and as we've all been studying this, this letter that Paul has been reminding us to rejoice in the Lord. It's such a good reminder. But the question is, what does it even mean to rejoice in the Lord? It's just become one of those phrases that we say so often and it almost becomes cliche. We don't actually take time to think about what does it mean? What does it mean for me to rejoice in the Lord? And as I was thinking about that, I began trying to think of a practical example or a, a, a practical example of what that looks like to be lived out, to rejoice in the Lord. 
And for those of you who don't know, um, about a year ago, I was, at this time actually, I was in Niger, which is in West Africa. And as I was thinking about this idea of rejoicing, I couldn't help but think of my brothers and sisters there, our brothers and sisters there in Niger. For those, and um, when I was there, I was serving alongside these established missionaries uh, in this country. And these missionaries planted a church. And this is a predominantly Muslim country that they planted this church in. And there's only a handful of believers. These missionaries have been here for almost a decade, and they've only seen a handful of believer people come to know the Lord, which is amazing, um, and it's a true testament to their service. Um, but I got to spend a lot of time with these Nigerian believers. I got to walk with them. I got to hear their testimonies, hear their stories, serve with them. I even lived with one of them. His name was Adrisa. And one thing that always amazed me about these people was they always radiated joy. They always radiated joy when I was among them. Remember, this is not an easy place to live. I mean, it's in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It's the least developed country in the world. Yet these people were so full of joy. And even more so than that, in Niger, like many Muslim countries, there's a big sacrifice, a big cost to following Christ. It always comes at a great cost and a great sacrifice. These believers, it was true for these these believers as well. Whenever they would decide to follow Christ and be baptized, they would lose their ability to find a job. Well, first they would lose their job, and then they couldn't find another job. They became outcasts in their communities. Even their own neighbors wouldn't consider them Nigerian, because to be Nigerian is to be Muslim. And even their own families, their own families would disown them, would disown them and not even consider them a part of their family. Yet still, still I noticed that they radiated joy. They radiated joys in ways like I had never seen in my own life or in many believers in America. So I obviously had to ask them. I had to ask, how in the midst of all this loss are you so joyful? How are you so joyful? And they always responded with the same simple phrase. They would say, and this is in their language, they would say, Hala, I go to Yesu, I go to Haikulu. Hala, I go to Yesu, I go to Haikulu. And it's a simple phrase, but it actually means, if I have Jesus, I have everything. If I have Jesus, I have everything. And that would be the end of the conversation. I would ask them, how are you radiating with joy? How is this possible? And they would say, if I have Jesus, I have everything. And obviously, like many of you might be right now, I was blown away by that. I was blown away by how simple but true that statement was. And then I realized in my own life, all the things that they have to radiate and joy about, all the things that they have to rejoice about, I have the same reasons to rejoice. And you have the same reasons to rejoice, no matter what your situation is in life. I just want to run through some of the truths that we've all heard a million times, but we should rejoice over. Think about it. Today, we all, who were once separated from God, have now been reconciled to Him, the Creator of the world, Because he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for our sins. And because Jesus died and rose again, we can now be dead to that sin that we were enslaved to and alive to God through him. And now God the Father has adopted us, adopted us, those same sinners, as his children. And through his grace, we will soon spend eternity in his presence. And until that day, we have the privilege, as we're going to talk about today, right now to truly know and have a relationship with the Savior of the world. 
with the Savior of the world, we can know Him intimately, personally, and have a relationship with Him. We have so much to rejoice about this morning. And I hope as we go through the rest of this passage, even though rejoicing isn't the main theme or the main point, that we would remember to rejoice. Rejoice when we hear these truths that we're going to hear. And that we could even recognize more causes to rejoice as we study this passage. But like I said before, rejoicing isn't the major point. But I'm glad Paul mentions it. I'm glad Paul mentions it. We all need that reminder. We need that reminder to rejoice. So Paul, going back to um, the way the, the main meat of this passage, um, he writes these first 11 verses of chapter 3. We're only talking about the first 6. But the first 11 verses show us something. Paul is opening his heart up to us. He's opening our heart, his heart to us. And we see something. We see his yearning. His yearning to know Christ more. To know his Savior more. We see this clearly in verse 8. I don't want to steal too much from Joel Carter. He's going to be preaching next week on verses 7 to 11. And I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. But in verse 8, he does say, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul is laying out for us his desire for intimacy with his Savior in these 11 verses. And in the passage we have today, he explains to us several several hindrances. Hindrances that can get in the way of that ultimate goal. That goal to know Jesus more. So first, he starts out in verse 2. He starts out with a warning. And that warning is to look out. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. His first warning that he mentions is a warning against false teachers. And and the reason we know that the dogs and that the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, are false teachers is because of that last phrase. That last phrase, mutilators of the flesh. See, there was a group at the time that the flip, uh, at this time um, of the Philippians, um, they were called the Judaizers. And these Judaizers, they sought to convince all non-Jews or Gentiles that they could not be saved unless they first became Jews. They had to become Jews first and then they could be saved. And to become Jews, they had to be circumcised. And this is why Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh, to actually cut the flesh. That's the way to salvation. And Paul warns against these false teachers because they were obviously teaching ideas that are contrary to the gospel that he's been teaching in all of his writings. The, the gospel, the true gospel that we know. See, these people were not willing to fully adopt the idea of salvation through faith alone. That allowed all who believed, even Gentiles, not just Jews, to be grafted into the blessings of salvation. They taught that faith wasn't enough, but works like circumcision or abiding in the law were necessary as well. To be saved. And Paul was clearly warning against these false teachers because they only served as a hindrance, a hindrance to his greatest desire for the Philippians, that they would know their Savior, Christ Jesus, more. And this is not the only warning that we have in Scripture about false teachers. We see it all throughout Paul's writing and all throughout Scripture. We shouldn't take lightly. We know this. We shouldn't take lightly those who defile the Word of God because they not only are speaking falsely about truth, but they can act in our churches, in our families, in our friend groups as a festering wound. A festering wound that does nothing but tear down everyone that's around them. And out of our love for our fellow brothers and sisters, our family members, our fellow church members, we should desire to remove anything, anything from our churches that would do that, 
that could possibly keep them from that intimacy with their Savior that they're searching for and that we all strive for together. But then the question arises, how do we recognize false teaching? How do we know what false teaching is or if a teaching is false or true? And I I think, I personally believe that the most important factor in recognizing false teaching is being saturated in the Word of God. Doing so helps us to discern truth from evil because we know that absolute truth, the absolute truth we believe in, comes from Scripture, the Bible that we all have. We're so blessed to have this truth, literally from God. And that's how we discern truth from evil. And it helps us to understand what is false teaching and what is true. And out of our love, uh, or and this is why many false teachers throughout history, as we know, and if we study history, church history, they discourage their followers from studying the Word. They discourage their followers from having a personal relationship with Scripture and, be, and doing so with God. And one big example that I thought about was the Catholic Church. We know that, I mean, even now, but even more so before the Reformation, the Catholic Church they discouraged their followers from reading the Bible. They made it seem as if the only way to God was through priests through priests and through the church. That was the only way. There wasn't means for a personal relationship in one's own time. They had to go through a mediator, a priest, which is not true, and we understand that. They, even wouldn't, even, they wouldn't even print Scripture. They made it illegal to print Scripture in the language of the people that were coming to their churches. They left it in Latin and languages like that so that they couldn't understand. And this is what, and the reason that they did that is because they knew that if their followers were to begin, begin studying the Word of God, they would recognize what they were teaching as a church was false. So we need to remember to be super serious about studying God's Word because it helps us to understand what is true teaching and what is false teaching. But some examples like this last one, the Catholic Church, that's a pretty extreme and big example of false teaching. But I think there, I think that false teaching can come in many shapes and sizes. It's not just big examples like that. On a, on a smaller scale, I would even say that surrounding ourselves with bad examples can be a form of false teaching. Surrounding ourselves with people who are gonna tear us down could be a form of false teaching. Being foolish in our choice of the circles that we live in can become another hindrance to our shared desire to know Jesus more. I think one beautiful example of this in Scripture that makes this idea clear is found in Psalm chapter 1, if you want to turn with me there. This is a passage that we're all familiar with, but it's so true. The, The words that are said here are so true. Psalm chapter 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We see it here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't surround himself with people who are false teachers, who are pouring information and thoughts and ideas into our lives that tear us away from that goal to know Jesus more. So look out. We need to look out for those, those people who the enemy may be using to distract us, 
to distract us from one of the greatest gifts that we have ever received, and that's the ability to know the Savior of the world, to truly know Him intimately. And then Paul goes on to say, as we turn back to Philippians chapter 3, he says, starting in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. And the reason that he says this is because he's trying to further push back against the Judaizers who were claiming the only way to Christ and to know Christ was to be circumcised first. He reminds the Philippians that we are the circumcision. And not because we have a physical circumcision or our flesh is literally cut, but because of the true circumcision that he talks about in Romans chapter 2. Remember the, the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart that's made possible through faith. Paul then says that we worship by the Spirit of God. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And put no confidence in the flesh. And this is where we begin to see his next warning. As we have already stated several times, Paul is sharing with us his strong desire to know Christ more. But so often our own heart can get in the way of the goal. We talked about external influences and people that can get in the way of that goal. But now we're going to be talking about our own heart and how that can get in the way of the goal of knowing Jesus more. Paul goes on to list all of these things that he could easily use to put confidence in. He starts in verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for, the conf- for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, as to follow the law, of the people of Israel, of God's chosen people, he could find confidence in that, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man among men, he could find confidence in that. As to the law of Pharisee and the way he follows it, he could find confidence in that as well. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, so zealous in his abiding by the law that he w- he's willing to persecute those who are going against God's word, he could find confidence in that. Or as to righteousness under the law, if there's anything, if there's anything to find confidence in, it's being blameless as to righteousness under the law. It's another thing he could find confidence in. He lists them all as things that he could, that he could attempt to put his confidence in. And the important thing to remember about confidence is that confidence is always in relation to a goal. And that goal that we're talking about here is intimacy with God, right? It's knowing God more. And I think that Paul was listing things that his pride may tempt him to put confidence in as signs of intimacy of God. So he thinks that maybe if I put my confidence in being a Hebrew of Hebrews, that would be a sign of my intimacy with God. See, some of these things could definitely bring Paul nearer to God if he if done in a right way. But putting confidence in them would do nothing to bring him nearer to God. Let me give you an example. Imagine if one of our elders in this assembly were to be confident in their relation or confident in their relationship with Christ solely based on the fact that they are an elder. That's it. Just because they're an elder, they're confident in their relationship with Christ. What if they believe that because they're an elder in the Great Adventure Church, then they are all set. There's nothing left to do in their relationship with Christ. There's nothing left to be seen or done so that relationship can prosper just because they are an elder. Well, obviously, if one of our elders were to put confidence in their status as an elder rather than the fact that they actually had a true relationship with their Savior, then they would be putting confidence in their flesh and ignoring the warning that Paul is giving all of us right here. 
Another example may be having a Bible degree or memorizing more scripture than anyone else in the whole church or being a tri-state student. See, all of these things are really good things and we should definitely invest in these things. I'm not saying that we should avoid them or throw them away. But if our confidence is put solely in them, then that confidence is becoming a hindrance, a hindrance to us having a real intimate relationship with Christ. And Paul, like we saw earlier, lists all of his reasons he could have for confidence in the flesh. But we know that he later says, as we read earlier in verse 8, that he counts all these things as loss. He counts them all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. See, some often when they read this list that Paul gives, thinks that he's just boasting or being prideful. But I believe he was just showing us. He was showing us how foolish it sounds. How foolish it sounds to put confidence in those things rather than a real intimate relationship with Jesus. Because when you read it, I mean, read it again. If anyone, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That sounds super prideful. It sounds super boastful. But obviously that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not, he's trying to show us how foolish it sounds to put confidence in those things. So many in our churches, sadly, today seek to do, 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 do as much as possible in order to be confident in their relationship with Christ. That we miss the big picture. We miss what it's all really about. That the journey to knowing Christ more is much simpler than we often make it out to be. We make it seem so difficult and we overcomplicate it when in reality it's so simple to know Jesus more and to have that relationship with him. But then the question arises, and I'm sure you've been wondering this, how do we actually know Jesus more? How do we actually know Jesus more? We hear these cliche phrases thrown around all the time in our Christian circles, right? And I've used them a million times already as I've been speaking. We hear the phrases like intimacy with Christ, or we need to walk with the Lord, or we need to have a relationship with Him. We need to love Him more. We need to know Him more. We've all heard these phrases a million times. But what do they actually mean? What do those words actually mean? And I was actually challenged to think this way a few weeks ago when I was having breakfast with Joel Carter. We were having breakfast, and um, he was just checking in on how, how everything was in life and how everything was going, how my relationship with the Lord was. And I was talking to him about this man who's been discipling me. And I said that I've been really encouraged by this man. I've, I've been encouraged by his example that he's set. And because of him I, and because of what he's been teaching me and how he's been discipling me, I feel myself growing closer to the Lord. And Joel is very critical, like a very critical thinker. And he kept asking me these questions. And when he was asking, I was like, what is he talking about? Just let me finish what I'm saying. And he's, he keeps asking me these questions. He says, you know... Luca, what does it what does it mean that he's been an example for you? And I'm like, what? Uh, well, I see the way that he walks in life, and I hear everything that he's saying, and I challenge it with scripture, and I feel myself growing closer to the Lord because I follow his example. And he's like, well, what do you mean that you feel yourself growing closer to the Lord? And I was like, well, I feel like 
the more time I spend in the Word and the more I follow this guy's example and the more I, he pours into me, I feel myself knowing Jesus more. Like, I feel like my relationship with him is more intimate. And he's like, well, what do you mean that you knowing Jesus more? And I was like, well, like I said, like that relationship, it just feels more personal the more time I spend, spend with him. And I just feel like it's more intimate. And he's like, well, what do you mean that it's more intimate? And he really got me thinking. And at first I was like, why is he asking, like putting me on the spot? And it led to a really great discussion that the, the spirit was truly leading. Um, but we started to realize that it's hard to explain it. It's hard to explain what it is that happens when we grow closer to Jesus, when we know him more. We try to like say all these phrases and say all these words that we've learned in our classes at Emmaus or at Tri-State or at church on Sunday. We try to make it sound eloquent when we, when we explain it to somebody. But in reality, it, it's more than just words. It's something that tangibly happens. And we were talking about um, examples of what that looks like just in everyday life. And I was thinking about, obviously Lauren would be a great example, but I want to use the example, like a wife or a spouse is a great, perfect example. But I want to use an example that's uh, applicable to everybody because not everybody's married. So I was going to use the example of a best friend. And I'm glad he's here. Connor is here in the back. Connor is one of my best friends in life. And... I was trying to think of how, how did I become one of Connor's best friends? I remember when we first met at Emmaus, I met him and I was like, oh, this guy is cool, you know? I, I, I enjoy him. I want to spend more time with him. So I started spending more time with Connor. And the more time I spent with Connor, the more I realized, you know, I actually love spending time with this guy. He's super fun and I just enjoy talking to him. And the more I sought that time with him because I love spending time with him, I was like, you know what? Because we're spending so much time together, like, I want to know you more, Connor. Like, tell me about yourself. So he starts to tell me about his family and his life and how he grew up in Moldova and all these really cool stories. And then he all starts to ask about me. He wants to know me more. And then it just happens. It just happens. And it's hard to explain that something happens when you, once you start spending time with someone that you love, that someone that you truly learn to love, you start to grow closer to them. And it's hard to put it into words, but it happens. And I don't think that our relationship with the Lord is any different. We oftentimes complicate it so much. We say, you know, I would never do this with Connor. I would never say, you know what, Connor, I'm going to give you 10 minutes every morning and like five minutes in the evening and we're going to be best friends. You know, that's going to really, that's really going to invest in our relationship. We don't think about our relationships as we're walking around with the people around us in that way, but we do with the Lord oftentimes. And it makes it so complicated. But we don't have to think that way. Our flesh, it just tempts us. It tempts us to add things to Christ in order to complicate Christ, when in reality, He makes it so beautifully simple to know Him more and to have a relationship with Him. And Christ Himself encourages us to think this the same way in His own teachings. You guys don't have to turn there. I'll turn there really quick. It's Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. I think we see... Um, the heart of Christ and his desire for us here. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the middle, he put him, the child, in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
So unless you turn and become like children, and we we have uh, like phrases like childlike faith and stuff like that. We say that a lot because of this passage. And I think it's beautiful what, what Christ is saying, how easy it is for him to have a relationship with a child. How easy it is for a child to, to cling to a parent. Like, think about that for a second. When, when a child has a relationship with their mom, they cling to them, that mom, so easily. Whenever that child is happy and discovers something new, they want to rush to their mom and tell them what happened. Whenever that child falls and scrapes their knee, they want to rush to their mother crying so that their mother will comfort them. Whenever that child is upset at their sibling and they want to just punch them in the face, they run to their mom and tell them everything that that sibling did to them. And a child does that because their belief is so simple and raw in in their mom or their dad as their parent. And Christ encourages us to be the same way in our faith. Have it simple and raw. Because when a child chooses to believe in something, they don't consider all the implications that the decision will have on their life. And they don't think about all the possible consequences that belief might bring, but they do it simply because they believe it to be true. And that should be the same for us. Because we believe it to be true, that we can have a relationship with the Savior of the world, we should invest in it. In the same way we would invest in our relationships on this earth, except for the fact that our relationship with Christ is a million times more important. A million times more important than my relationship with Connor. Even though I love spending time with Connor, it's a million times more important. It's more important than even my relationship with my wife, which is my first ministry, you know? But my relationship with Christ is more important. And I should invest more into that, even more more than I do with my wife. But how often do we think that way? But like we've talked about before, we live in a world that makes this very difficult that is full of hindrances to a real relationship with our Savior. So look out. Like we were reminded by Paul, look out for those who turn you away from Him, who keep you from that goal of knowing Him more. And don't allow your own pride and flesh tear you away from the most beautiful relationship you will ever have in your life. And don't overcomplicate something that Christ makes so beautifully simple for us. And just to close, I would like all of us to turn to John chapter 1. I want to just remind you, remind you once more of who this Savior is that we get to know. And John chapter 1 explains it so perfectly and describes Him so well. And remember, as we're reading this, that this is the Savior. This is the Savior that we get to know. So John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, through Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. 
glory as the own as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth john bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom i said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ no one has ever seen god the only god who's at the father's side but he he has made him known this this is the savior that allows us to know him and have a relationship with him and we should all rejoice in that this morning let's pray Dear Heavenly Father, God, um, we just thank you so much for your word um, and for these truths. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus, that you sent him to die on a cross. And we're so undeserving of that fact and that reality, but we thank you. We thank you for your love and your mercy and the grace that, of which you've shown us. And we thank you that we have the ability to know him more. I pray that you would help all of us to know how to invest our time in a way that would be pleasing to you and pleasing to him. And help us to be excited, excited about the fact that we get to know the Savior of the world. We get to know him personally as our friend. So God, I pray that you would just encourage all of us and let everything that was true remain on our hearts. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.